Hey, my name's Latoya Shantae Snell. I'm an ultra runner, former culinarian, multi-sport athlete, baby power lifter, writer, content creator, mom, wife, friend, potty mouth expert. Uh, did I miss a role? Anyway, all of these roles have something in common, storytelling. And as a storyteller, that's what I plan to do. My way, of course. Welcome to the Running Fat Chef Podcast. The Running Fat Chef Podcast is primarily powered by you. Yes, you. Consider buying us a cup of coffee, maybe some dope ingredients for my next creative meal, or show a girl some love by visiting coffee.com. That's K-O hyphen F-I dot com forward slash running fat chef. Bonus fry, y'all. Are you a business owner, entrepreneur, or have a service that you like to promote? Well, honey, why not here? Sponsor an episode here on the Running Fat Chef podcast. Check out the show notes for more details. Hey, hey, Nicole. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Running Fat Chef podcast. I am so excited to have you here. And I'm so excited that you guys are actually going to be able to tune in to this amazing episode. Now, let me actually give y'all the, um, the layout of who we are actually talking with today. So Nicole Snell is a dynamic international speaker, the CEO of Girls Fight Back, the creator of Outdoor Defense, and is full, pretty much like a full, like, I, like, see, I'm reading her, her bio here, but to me, I'm just like, this girl will kick your ass, okay? Understand that if you come up to her on the trail, she is not going to just karate chop you. She is going to make you regret it. And because women are strong, women are freaking powerful. They are dynamic. And she's going to tell you all the ways of what makes her dynamic and a powerful force in this community. But to actually go back to the bottom of the bio, y'all know I, y'all listen to me enough already now. By now, I don't know what episode this is going to be, but this is going to be episode whatever. And if you heard enough of my bios, y'all know I go off the script and off the grid all the time, but we're going to go right back here to this bio. She is a full force self-defense instructor for impact personal safety. She's traveled to travel the world, speaking to hundreds of groups at colleges, kindergarten through 12 schools, corporations, and the military on topics including sexual assault and violence prevention, boundaries, personal safety, and empowerment. Y'all. My girl won a Webby Award in 2020 for hosting the Taste Made travel video, Self-Defense for Female Travelers, where she represented Impact Personal Safety. Nicole is an NACP credentialed advocate, and she she has been dedicated her life to teaching people how to live a confident, free, and empowered life, because we kind of need a lot of that in this world. She's an avid solo traveler. Yes, women travel on their own and they badass while they do it. Outdoor enthusiast and adventurer having visited 25 countries on six different continents. Yes, you know, y'all do know that it's um there's a lot of um places out here um besides the United States, right? Okay, I'm just making sure. And she hikes and she's an adventure leader for Black Girls Trekking. If you don't know anything about that, I suggest you to go to the show notes and you check that out. Because um, if you didn't know, now you know, and you heard it from here. So with all that being said, welcome, welcome, welcome to the podcast, Nicole. Thank you so much. I don't think I've ever had an introduction that amazing. So thank you so much. It is, it is a pleasure to be here. I'm over here smiling and just, uh, just like, can you come with me and do all my introductions everywhere I go, please? <laughs> <laughs> like Thank it's, you. It is crazy. Like every time I do these introductions, everybody's like always trying not to cackle as I, as like, as I come like, cause I'm like, listen, I'm like, I, I'm going to read your, in your bio, but I'm just like, nah, I got to do this my way. Like, you know, like we, we got, we got to do a little bit, like we got to like really like hype you up to be on this podcast. Like, you know, listen, like coming to the stage, you know, she's dynamic. She'll kick your ass and give you a smile. This is the fabulous Nicole Snell. Like, you know, like it's just gotta be something here. Like, I mean, cause like we, we listen to 10,000 podcasts all day long and everybody's like, you know, so tell me how you started. Everybody's like super serious and monotone. And like, you know, tell me, that's so intriguing. And like, you know, we're, we're touching on heavy subjects. And I know, you know, in your case, we're definitely going to touch into some heavy subjects. So like, you know, why not find something to be lighthearted to start it off? And it's just like, I don't want anyone to listen to this and feel overwhelmed. 
Now, as a trigger warning to anyone that is listening to this podcast, just in case the disclaimer actually doesn't come up, you know, um, before the show, we will be talking about some areas that might need a little bit of a trigger warning for some people. We will be covering things about disordered eating. Um, you know, we will be talking about self-defense and possibly some topics on violence will come up. So if this is not the episode for you, or maybe you need a little bit of time, I heavily encourage you to pick up a pen and paper, um, take some notes. You might be able to learn something along the way, um, or maybe actually find a loved one that you can actually pull into the room and say, Hey, listen, can you actually listen to this with me? You know, because I'm not sure of what things are going to be discussed here. You know, the things that we will be discussing today are some, you know, some some heavy hitting topics. And these are some of the things I've actually talked about, you know, in my own personal life. Um, We have a lot more in common than just our last names. Um, We've definitely joked about our last names. If you guys don't know, our last names are not smelly. Um, It's not snail. Um, it is not any type of variation of that sort. It is Snell, S-N-E-L-L. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, you know, so like, you know, so, you know, like I said, you know, we are going to kind of dive in to a bit of, you know, some hard conversations, you know. Um, and one of the things that we brought up, you know, before actually hitting the record button, we actually started talking about, you know, eating disorders and, you know, body images and how a lot of that kind of shaped the way that, you know, how it took a toll on you in sports um, and the competitions that you did. So, you know, I would rather like, you know, just give you the floor of, you know, this kind of like starting that off. Oh, thank you so much, Latoya. Um, So, yeah, eating disorders. I can say that I am recovered, but recovery doesn't mean that I don't have bad days, bad weeks, bad months, but I suffered from an eating disorder from the time I was probably in early junior high school, maybe even towards the end of elementary school, you know, fifth, sixth grade is when I first started being very aware of my body and feeling like I had to fit a certain standard. And for a while, I never talked about it. I didn't talk to people about it until a few years ago. when I noticed some women that were in my circle that were younger than me that were having the same thoughts and expressing the same things that I had struggled with for so many years. And I decided that it was time to talk about it and to share my experience because I didn't want anyone else to suffer through that. I had years and years where my whole life, my whole day, everything revolved around what I was going to eat and what I look like in pictures or what I was going to look like in pictures or what I was going to eat later or how much exercise I would have to do to make up for what I just ate or what I wouldn't be able to eat for the next couple of days because of what I just ate. It, I, I call it a monster because it felt like a monster that was living in my brain that wasn't allowing me to live my life because everything revolved around that. So I started dieting when I was in junior high school, not eating breakfast and then, you know, picking very light things to eat for lunch and then pretty much just eating, you know, romaine lettuce and, and salads and things like that and skipping meals feeling that I was disciplined if my tummy was growling and I just worked through it and I played sports. It wasn't as if I was just going to school and coming home. I was on the track team for all four years in high school and I was volleyball player, uh, sophomore through senior year, co-captain my senior year. So I was in sports and I was actually doing great in school. I'm going to toot my own horn. I'm very much an overachiever. So I was straight A student lettering in the sports that I was playing and all these things, but no one really knew that I was struggling with all of these things. And it was constantly about what I look like. I had this ideal and the ideal kind of still exists today. The idea that in order to be beautiful, to be considered beautiful, you have to be a certain weight. You have to fit into a certain size. You have to have a certain body type. And if you don't fit that, you're not worthy. You're not good enough. You're not pretty enough. You um, aren't you aren't a worthwhile person. And those were the messages that I got. I don't feel like anyone actually told me that, but that was the messages that I got. And so I felt like, okay, so the best way for me to be successful and happy and liked and pretty and all these things was to be as skinny as possible, as thin as possible. I look back on pictures now when I was at kind of the height of my anorexia and I'm skin and bones. And yet I remember in that moment, looking at those pictures 
saying to myself that I was still fat, pointing out the parts of my thighs that I still thought were too flabby or too jiggly or the parts of my arms. You know, I would just pick my body apart. I would sit in front of the mirror and pinch and push and touch and turn in different directions to try to look at myself in a certain way or, you know, critique my body to just to the poor. I was my own worst enemy just hated myself and hated my body and then would do everything that I could to try to change it. And what the, what the professionals will always tell you about eating disorders is that it, it boils down to control. But I feel like while I was suffering, I didn't feel like it was control. I didn't consciously say to myself, well, I feel out of control in other areas of my life. So I am going to you know, eat 200 calories a day and exercise for five hours. I, I didn't say that to myself. I just remember feeling like, I don't like the way I look. There's so much wrong with how I look. So how am I going to fix it? And if I fix it, then everything will be right with the world. But it never was. It never was. So I kind of transitioned from anorexia to becoming an exercise bulimic. And for those of you who don't know, that means that you would eat things, you know, maybe things that weren't necessarily healthy or overeat. And then instead of restricting your food, what you do is you go and over exercise. You spend extra time in the gym and extra time doing cardio and things like that. And I feel like this is another thing that's not really talked about. You, you feel like you have to fit a certain title of your eating disorder like it's only one thing. You can only be anorexic or you're only this. It, it's not, it, it's very fluid. I, I kind of, you know, moved in between a few ways of how I would manage my, my weight that wasn't just fitting into a box. So don't feel like you have to fit into a box that, that, you, that there's a certain title for what you're going through. And I would, you know, exercise. And then I got into competing for bodybuilding. So I was a figures competitor for three years. And the first couple of shows I did, I'll be completely honest. I'm being completely vulnerable right here with all of you. The first two shows I did, I did it because I wanted to be thin. I wanted to be thin and muscular and look the way the women looked on stage. And I thought, this is great. This is a chance for me to have my diet completely controlled by a coach, to have my exercise completely controlled by a coach to get the desired effect. And so it worked. You know, I, I followed the plan. Again, it was about control. But then your eating becomes my eating became even more disordered because I was even more limited as to what I could and couldn't eat. And it was all about how you looked. I feel like that exacerbated things because then it really was about how your body looked. And so that in turn led to compulsive overeating because of having such a restrictive diet for so long to get ready for a show. First of all, when you're done with the show, you are craving everything. You will shove everything into your mouth at the end of the show. You want pizza, you want bread, you want carbs, you want sugar, you want cookies, you want oranges, you want all of it. And the moment you indulge in even just a little bit, your body, um, the your uh you'll, you'll bloat a little just because it's normal you're 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 eating more salt and sugars and things like that and you've been decreasing your water and so what happens is that your you look flat like your muscles start to look flat and bloated the cuts in between your muscles fill in with water because of all the salt and things that you're eating it's a normal reaction but then you look at yourself and you say oh my gosh i don't look as good as i did on stage a week ago or 3 days ago or 2 months ago and then it just kind of perpetuates the cycle and then I would overeat on my cheap meals or my cheat days. And I would make lists, Latoya, of everything I wanted to eat. Right. So I would obsess over pictures of food and look at what I wanted to eat for the one cheat meal I could have on Saturday or during my training. And then I would have a hard time choosing. And then it would turn into from a cheap meal into a whole cheat day. So I would rebound pretty heavily after a show. And then get really depressed about it. And then it just became a cycle. And every waking moment in my head was constantly about what I was going to eat, what I wasn't going to eat, feeling guilty about it before I even did it. And then worrying about how I was going to look in pictures. I would go on vacation. I would be traveling. I would be somewhere. And I would be so worried about making sure I stayed on my diet while I was traveling because I couldn't backslide. Or I would take pictures and I would just hate the way they came out. Or I wouldn't take pictures because I was afraid of how I was going to look, that I was going to look too fat or too flabby or not muscular enough. So there was a lot of pressure, not just to be thin, but then also to be muscular and, and still, you know, feminine looking. And then I 
struggle with this for years, years. And I finally had a friend that gave me some tough love because I would call her and say, oh, I just ate this. Do you think I'm going to get fat? Oh, I just really wanted to eat this brownie or whatever. Or I, I missed the gym. Like the gym for me became a way of controlling my weight. It wasn't, I wasn't exercising because it made me feel good or because right. I wanted to be healthy or strong. It was like, I have to go. If I don't go, if I miss one day, I'm going to get fat. Like mm-hmm. for me growing up, being fat was like the worst thing you could be, the worst name you could be called. And so that kind of played into, you know, my own sense of self-worth. And so I had a friend that finally told me, Nicole, you need help. I can't continue to have you call me and and talk to me about your food and your eating and things. She's like, I am not equipped to help you with this. So you can call and talk to me about anything else, but you can't call and talk to me about food, your weight, what you weighed this morning, how much you exercise, none of those things. And I was like, wow, like I never had anyone like set a boundary with me like that. Yeah, I would and, say that that was a heavy boundary setting thing. Cause, I mean, because it's hard, you know, like to not only as a person that's going through it, I think a lot of times, you know, we hear these stories about, you know, people who's going through the eating disorder, but we don't never, we don't think we really focus on the people who actually are hearing and absorbing and watching what's going on without it being toxic. Because there's a, there's a, there's a difference between someone who's trying to call you in and another person that's trying to call you out. You know, we see a lot of that happen online where you have someone like, you know, I, I know I get a lot because I am a plus size person who happens to have, you know, a de- eating disorder. And when I think of myself being in this space, when I got diagnosed with anorexia nervosa, I was in complete denial. Like I heard them, I was scared, but I was just like, I don't see any advertisements that look like me. I was like, you know, like and at the time I couldn't have been no more than the size six, eight. And I still looked at myself as I'm not athletic enough. I'm not at the desired, you know, and it was for me, it wasn't even so much about, you know, looking a certain way for pictures. It was more like, how can I be accepted by my peers if I'm so fat, you know, and I couldn't have been no more than like 165 at that time. I'm five foot three, y'all. Like, y'all, like, I know a lot of people look at my pictures and they're like, oh yeah, you tall. I'm like, Mm-mm, I'm short as hell. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I am short as I thought you were taller than that. I'm five no, eight. I thought we were the no, same height. No, Girl, I I'll be, wish. I'll be like an Amazon warrior next to you. I'll be so tall. <laughs> no, like I no, I was I would say that's shout out to the hubby for shooting me up on pictures and he just gives me like this really like long look and really uh, people are like oh my gosh like you look like you but much shorter and I'm just like yeah I'm five foot three and a half because the half part has to matter because I'm really short you know and you know I've taken consideration that there's just so many negative things that we get on television that's crammed at us like you know so like I mean I think back to one of the things that you said um about you know how it started and it's like you know it's not something that someone has necessarily told you per se, but it's more about the power of imagery of what you see, what you don't see, you know, and I think about that and far as far as like, you know, as a, as a first fellow person, that's actually, you know, who I've been diagnosed with, you know, anorexia nervosa. Um, and something else that you also said that I thought was very powerful is that you get diagnosed. It doesn't mean that it's like a cure, you know, um, cause some people are like, oh, you got this diagnosis. You haven't, you haven't quote unquote relapsed. So you're cured. That's just not the case. Like it, like this, this, these diagnoses take over your life. And, you know, like the, the other part that made me feel seen as you were talking, um, is, and I wonder, like, I mean, cause I've never had it actually really, really diagnosed to me. I wonder if I was doing the same thing where for me, I would work out and I would justify my calories because I worked out and I was like, oh, this is my reward for the day. And I can eat this amount. And if I just put in an extra 30 minutes here, then that means that I can have the dish that I want. And this is how I'm going to counter it off. And I was just like, damn, that's toxic too. You know, I, I, I realized that like my friends were terrified to tell me that they actually saw something wrong. And what did not help was that some of the friends that I probably could have heard that advice from, some of them either were practicing disordered eating themselves because they were in fitness or some of them just did not see me as such because I'm black you know like a lot of like the eating disorder conversations sometimes stem around the stereotypes of being a skinny white woman 
or, you know, like you have to look a certain way just to be anorexic. You have to, like, if anything, people instantly looked at me and they was just like, oh, she's plus size. So she overeats. That's that, that was just the way that people looked at it. And I'm just like, no, that wasn't my reality. Actually, my reality is that I skipped out on so many meals that my body literally could not hold on to nutrients and the way that your body works, you know, and I can have any nutritionist that will correct me on this, but the way that your body works is it goes into starvation mode and now it starts yeah. to eat at the muscles. You know, it, yeah. it starts saying like, okay, help. We're in crisis mode. How are you going to save us? And I'm just like, I don't know how to save my body. I don't even know how to save myself or myself because mentally it hasn't clicked in, you know? So like, I mean, I, I wonder like, you know, when it came down to actually receiving the diagnoses, like how long did it actually take for you to like, for it to register? You know, like, you know, that, that this was a reality, that this was actually happening. So after my friend get, set that boundary with me, it took me about six months before I decided to go to therapy. And I saw a therapist for about a year and we worked through a lot of things. But I think what really was the turning point for me was the fact that I had accepted that I had a problem. I accepted that there was something wrong that I couldn't fix by myself, that my friends and support system, they were great. But that wasn't the help that I needed in this moment. And going to therapy gave me that extra, that help, that realization that, okay, I have some things to work on. And at that point in my life, when I was going to therapy, I weighed more than I wanted to weigh in that moment. I wasn't, I wasn't severely overweight. I was around 185 and I'm 5'8". So that's not, you know, it's not too bad, but for me and like my ideal of what I wanted to look like, that was way outside of what I wanted to look like for myself or what I thought I needed to, what weight I needed to be at. I was ruled by the scale for so, so many years. And I have not stepped on a scale in like a year or two. I go to the doctor's office still and I say, don't tell me what it says. Like, I don't need that. Like I may... I consider myself recovered, but there's still triggers. I don't want to know what my weight is because that can send off a whole cycle spiral of me being like, oh, I didn't think I weighed that number or it should be this number or what I just don't need it. So I'll get on the scale. Don't tell me what it says. I, I just need to be comfortable with what I look like in the mirror and how my clothes fit. And that's how I go from now on. But I was around 185 and I finally just reached a realization and I said, you know what? I look fine. There's nothing wrong with the way I look. And if someone doesn't like me because they think I weigh a little too much or my thighs are a little too big or my butt's a little too big, then I don't need them in my life. I am right. going to be happy. My body is strong. I can hike. I can run. I'm ice skating. I am biking. I'm doing all these great activities that I haven't been limited at. Like my weight hasn't limited me in doing these things. So I need to just embrace that fact. My body is strong. And then I, at that moment, at that realization is when my body started responding to my, my, the food that I was eating and the exercise that I was doing, because now I was exercising because I wanted to be strong. Right. I wanted to go in the gym and lift because, you know, I wanted to be able to lift more that I had a, a goal as far as how much weight I wanted to lift, not how much weight on my body I wanted to lose. And it became a, a thing of strength. And I think that mindset alone is what then helped me transition from an active eating disorder to someone who's recovered. And it's not a closed book. It's not that I'm healed. It's not that I'm completely done. I carry this with me all the time. When the quarantine started with COVID, I had a whole month or so where I regressed back into my disordered eating and my disordered way of thinking and worrying about well, I can't go to the gym now. And well, now I have to be more careful about what I eat and I have to restrict and I have to do this and that. And it just becomes all consuming. It's, it's an obsession. And for me, I can't speak for any other person with an eating disorder, but it becomes an obsession and a compulsion to think about what you're going to eat and what you're going to do to exercise and how your clothes are going to fit five days from now or a week from now. And it just consumes your life. And your, your waking moment and what other you're putting all that energy into that. Where's your energy for anything else, anything positive. And that is where really the danger comes in. I feel like, so I realized that a lot of my, my beliefs and internalizations about my weight came from the fact that I grew up in a, I grew up in a small town that was predominantly white. We had more diversity than you would expect in a small town because there was a military base there. Right. There was a lot of people from a lot of different places, but it was still predominantly white. And, you know, 
the ideal in the 80s and 90s was really skinny, you know, yes. white women were conceited. <sighs> We're seen as the ideal of beauty. And I was not really skinny. I was athletic and I'm not white. I'm half black and half white. So I had, you know, much bigger butt and much bigger thighs and much more athletic body. You know, I was never going to look like that because that's not who I was, but who I was, according to what the magazine showed me and what I saw on TV and in movies, what I was, wasn't the ideal. And so I thought that I needed to do what I could to be this ideal. Otherwise I wasn't worth it because we didn't have as much representation then as we do now. There were no women that looked like me really that I could look at and be proud of and say, oh, it's okay. I I can see myself in her and she's beautiful. I would see women represented and I would feel sad and down on myself that, oh, I'm not, I'm not skinny like that. I'm not, you know built like that. I don't have, you know, that kind of body shape. It must mean that, that I'm not good enough. And I feel like that's what really contributed to it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, like, did you bring that up? Cause I, I feel like you have a unique perspective. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm black, you know, I'm just, you know, I just, you know, I, there's like, I don't, I, I don't, I don't say I identify as, you know, black and, you know, and I feel like there's another layer, you know, I can't, I, I can't tell you what the biracial experience, you know, feels like, you know, and with online, the commentary can be so vicious. Um, it is super vicious. It's like, you know, I, I've seen some activists who I've actually respect, you know, I respect and I disagree with some of their stances. It was like, you know, you can't speak on this because you're not 100% black. And I'm just like, okay, like, first off, do you actually, can you, can we, any of us really trace back everything? <laughs> like, you know, like, let's just be real for a minute. Like, can any of us trace back anything? And, you know, like, I mean, I, I said my own layer of, you know, I didn't see a person that looked like me when and that was part of my, my hardships of identity in the front excuse me, fumbling on my words. It was some of my hardships of identifying as a person with an, uh, with an eating disorder because I didn't see anyone that looked like me that was speaking up about this topic. I didn't see one, anyone for me. I didn't see it as a plus size person. I did not see this as a black woman, you know, and, you know, I can, you know, I'm only, almost in a position to only assume, you know, how much harder of that that is for you as a biracial woman you know, to not see anyone or hear someone actually speaking up about those things. Like I think about, you know, um, and welcome to the sounds of Brooklyn, y'all, um, <laughs> in the background, <laughs> you know, the, but I think about the, uh, the, the hardships, um, of just us growing up as eighties and, you know, eighties and nineties kids, you know, like, I mean, I'm born in 85 and I think about the Barbie doll experience where, we pick up a doll and it's like, all right, I remember actually, and this, this is almost like embarrassing to actually admit, but I mean, hell, if we're going to be vulnerable, we'd be vulnerable here. You know, I remember picking up the Barbie doll and my mom would always get the black Barbie doll. And I'm like, the black Barbie doll is not what I want. I want the white Barbie doll. And, you know, she's like, well, we want to get a Barbie doll that looks like you. And I'm like, well, she don't really look like me because her hair is straight. You know, so it was just like, when I think about that growing up, I remember considering the white Barbie doll beauty, not just because of her straight, you know, her straight, you know, incredible here for her body, you know, was, you know, Barbie could be anything. But when I looked at myself, I'm like, I don't know where I, where I can be. I was limited in how I identified. I don't know. How does that shape your, you know, the, a sense of knowing who you are you know, as a biracial woman. And I know that's like a loaded question and it's really like open, but, you know, like, I I think that sometimes maybe even that becomes, you know, an issue where you walk into a certain community where you say that most of the community that you are around was predominantly white. You know, how does it, you know, was there any hardships of kind of like, you know, identifying with an African-American community or a black community in general? Because we not going to limit this just to African-Americans. Right. Yeah. I would say growing up as a biracial black girl in a small desert town wasn't always easy. You know, um, I feel like I never fit in anywhere. I I didn't really fit in with any group because with the white kids and the white groups, I was still too black for them. And I would be told that because my hair was nappy. My hair was, those are the words that were told to me. Your hair is nappy. Your hair, your hair is frizzy. You know, you wear glasses and I would get teased because, you know, I'm, so my dad's black and my mom's white. And so depending on who would pick me up from school, they would be like, Oh, are you adopted? 
because oh, I didn't wow. really look like either of them. And I'm you know, six and seven trying to explain why my skin is brown and I don't quite look all the way like my dad. I don't quite look all the way like my mom. And with the black kids in my community, I wasn't necessarily black enough either because I talked white. That was what I was oh, told. I talked maybe. white. I and I would that. say, well, my I, I live now with my mom and my parents divorced when I was very young. And so, you know, I live predominantly with my mom and she's white. So how else am I supposed to talk? I'm going to talk <laughs> like how I grew up. You know, I didn't understand like why that would be so hard to, to understand, you know, and as I grew up and, you know, got older and matured and got into high school, then I kind of fell into my identity and realized I didn't have to didn't have to pick. I could just be friends with whoever, but I would still get, you know, even, even now, and right. I'm sure you've seen, you know, messages like on, on line. I feel like, didn't I graduate from high school already? Why am I still answering the question of why I am too black for this group or too not black right. enough for this group? Like, can't I just exist? Like I, I have experienced racism and been called racial slurs and stuff because I walk into a room and people know automatically that I'm black or that I'm black mixed with something, you know, that's not something that I can hide and it's part of who I am and I embrace it. But I, I don't have the same experience probably as you do Latoya, but I have the experience of being discriminated against or called names or disregarded and things like that because I am black. And so it it was a challenge growing up and I want other people to know other biracial people to know that, you know, it is possible to find your place and that, you know, for anyone who has biracial friends that, you know, just, just support who they are, you know, just support right. them, however they identify, you know, some biracial people, you know, identify like they get to choose how to identify. And, right. and we have it hard enough trying to fit into so many different worlds that it, it, it shouldn't be made even more difficult for us to try to find a place to belong. I definitely agree. Um, you know, cause you know, like, uh, you know, in that sense, like, I mean, and it's so weird to actually say this, but like in in a sense, I feel like I I would be an ally in you know in that conversation because I don't know what it is you know uh, about the biracial experience. I, I sometimes I hear as an outsider, I hear some of the conversations going on, and I'm just like I can't contribute to that. You know, I, I can listen, I can you know I can empathize, but I can't contribute to that because you know someone looks at me and they instantly anything if anything I get profiled and people look at my locks and they're like you know they'll start pulling out a weird Jamaican accent and I'm just like what are you saying? What are you doing? This is awkward. You know, like, <laughs> please stop. You know, like, and, and they're like, you know, what island are you from? And I'm like, the island of Brooklyn? You know, um, you know, <laughs> it's like, I'm like, let's stop the profiling here. You know, so I can only imagine the things that, you know, that you've heard, that you've experienced. And um, yeah, uh, I just say, I say thank you just for even opening up on that part because someone is going to actually hear this podcast and they're going to feel very seen um, in this very moment because I don't think there's enough dialogue about what it's like to be biracial, um, particularly here in the United States. If I only centered around the United States, I don't think there's enough conversations on it. Um, you know, most of the conversations that we hear about, you know, being biracial is really a lot of fetish, you know, fetishized conversations of, oh, you know, you're the girl with the good hair. You know, then we have to define, you know, oh, you know, you have Betty here. Your hair is 4C or I don't even know what any of this shit actually means, to be very honest. Um, <laughs> like I tell people in the heartbeat, like I'm an activist, but I am not like my my woke hand only goes up halfway. You know, I'm just like I'm woke ish, just like the damn show. Um, <laughs> I'm just not, you know, like I, I just I just can't co-sign to everything that I hear out there because I'm just like I, I think about how all this stuff, one, is going to age over time. Did you know that your girl is selling merch? Yep, you damn skippy I am. If you're looking for a dope crop top, a hoodie that can dilute the salt from all of your haters, or a mug that will make you feel just as good as your morning brew, check out runningfatchef.com. That's right, runningfatchef.com. Don't whisper it, baby. One more time, runningfatchef.com. Rep your favorite fit fat athlete gear today. We're going to look back at this time in history and say, look at the age of the influencer. People are losing their damn minds. Look at them just following <laughs> trends blindly, not even doing any research. Like, you know, so I think about all those things. And when I think about the conversations that's put out there, 
you know, whether we're talking about race, whether we're talking about, you know, identity, or we're even talking about, you know, um, when it comes down to eating disorders or, you know, body politics and body diversity, you know, everybody's experience is different. You know, we can't line up six black people in a room and say they all have the same experience, even if you were not biracial. Let's say that, you know, you were biracial and you just identified as white or you just identified as black. There's no way I can line all of us up in the room and say, well, if y'all all in the same neighborhood, if you're all living on the same, you know, you're all living in a house, a house next to each other, you all the same age, have the same birthday. It does not make your, your situations or your experiences exactly the same. It is, I feel like there's too much, too many people out here that's boxing people and, and profiling us, you know? Agreed. Yeah, we're not, not, no group is a monolith, you know, like I have a lot of friends that are also biracial mixed, you know, black and Mexican or um, my sister and brother actually black and Japanese. Their mom is Okinawan. And, you know, we all have a different experience. We all do. You know, I have folks that haven't experienced the, the difficulty that I had trying to like figure out where I fit in. They fit in just fine where they were. So there are some that may have no struggles at all. And that's just as valid. You know, it's not about, this isn't a competition to see who has the worst struggle or, oh, yeah. the you know, or for me to try to, yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's about how can we uplift and support each other? If we see someone being oppressed, if we see someone struggling, if we see someone experiencing discrimination, how can we stand up and be supportive of them and, and, and do what we can to treat each other as, as humans. And that's really what I feel like it needs to be about. Right. You know, like that actually like kind of like, you know, brings us into, and I know this is like a cliche topic for a lot of people. People are just like, oh, I'm so tired of hearing this term, body positivity. You know, um, but mm-hmm. I, honestly, I, I've met a person, I'm one of those people that's like, you know, I call it body politics. Um, because I think that, you know, I think like most movements, it starts off in a really good direction. And then marketing. And capitalism gets involved. And then next thing you know, it's like the movement is gone. We're now talking about something completely different. You know, I feel like, you know, everything that we've talked about so far falls underneath that realms of body politics, you know, of, you know, mm-hmm. of being able to claim autonomy over your own body um, and your mind. And, you know, like that mm-hmm. actually gives me an opportunity to kind of segue into Girls Fight, um, Girls Fight Back. Like, how did that come about? Like, oh my gosh, like, Y'all, like before before the recording actually started, I was telling her about how much I st- I inappropriately cackled when I saw one of these videos online. And like, you guys got to check it out. Like go on her Instagram. There's a video that's up and she's doing a self-defense video. And she's like, I think you need the shit out of this guy. And I was just like in here, rewinding it back five or six times, cackling at the top of my lungs. I'm like, this shit is hilarious, but it is so necessary because I'm like, I love seeing that power. You know, I love being able, not so much the power of kicking his ass. Like, not, like, you know, like I don't, I don't wish any harm on him. And, um, you know, uh, you know, kudos to the guy that, that took it and he was in his, you know, he was already like padded up. So I don't want you guys thinking I'm promoting violence on here. Don't at me on here. Okay. So, um, <laughs> but no, like I love that you're able to empower people, particularly, you know, I think that the communities that you actually tap into is like essentially, you know, girls and women, but even non-binary communities or people, you know, minority communities who sometimes we feel a little defenseless at times, or the world is basically scaring the shit out of us into believing that we cannot travel on our own, that we need a chaperone. You know, um, one of the things that I know I've received online about close to two years ago is someone actually said to her audience that I was running around at nighttime in my quote unquote dangerous neighborhood. And it was just so problematic because I chose to do night running. You know, definitely, you know, give me an insight on, you know, how did you create Girls, um, Girls Fight Back? And, you know, what, you know, how do you, how does, like, how does that all work? Like, you know, like how, how do you empower people in your everyday life? Well, so Girls Fight Back was started in 2001. It's almost been 20 years. And it was founded by a woman named Erin Weed in honor of her friend, Shannon McNamara, who was murdered in her off-campus apartment. Mm. 
And Erin wanted to create a program to empower women with violence prevention because she was inspired by how hard Shannon had fought, that they were able to capture enough evidence to capture and prosecute her murderer. And so Erin wanted to empower women with skills and tools so that they could feel safe, that they could feel confident going out and living their lives, knowing that they have options for how to protect themselves. So that's how the program originally started. I started as a speaker for the program in 2014. And last year I took over as the CEO and I have always been so passionate about helping other people and standing up for others and defending other people. I have a big mouth and I will speak up and say something if if something doesn't sit right with me or if I feel like someone needs help, I'll ask if they need help or if someone's being, you know, talked to in an inappropriate way, I will speak up and I also have been very headstrong my whole life. I remember coming to college and people telling me, well, you can't go out after this point or you can't walk in this neighborhood or you can't walk in this park. And I basically said to them, I'm going to do whatever I want whenever I need to do it. If I need to go to the grocery store at midnight because that's the only time I have to go, I'm going to do it. I do not want to limit my life. (laughs) Yeah, I, I didn't like this idea of limits. And I've always kind of had that headstrong personality about it before I had any self-defense training. But then I became a self-defense instructor and got involved with the Girl Psych Back program in 2014 and then got trained to be a full contact instructor. And I have training, including defense against the armed assailants training. And I just want women, I, I mean, everyone, anyone of any gender, I feel like we can all benefit from knowing that we have options and how to defend ourselves. And self-defense is more than just physical. A lot of folks think it is just the, you know, just the kneeing and the groin. That's part of it. <laughs> but <laughs> a bigger part of it is how do we not get to that point? Right. How can we take steps in our life to manage our safety in ways where we don't have to necessarily need someone in the groin? But if we need to, I want those skills to be there so that we know we can do it. There's so many messages in the world that tell women and people who identify as women or non-binary or gender non-conforming individuals who that, you know, that we are weak, that we aren't strong enough, that we have to do all of these things. There's laundry list of don'ts that we have to abide by if we want to be safe. And none of those things are guarantees. None of those things are guarantees. I'm a survivor of violence and I didn't engage in any of the don'ts. So assuming that there's a list that will keep you safe is a false sense of security. And then it also is victim blaming to then say, well, you didn't do these things or you did these things and now it's your fault. It's never the fault of the survivor or the victim ever. It's always the fault of the criminal. And self-defense is a way of us being able to reclaim our power and to know that we can go out and live our life and do the activities we want, we want to do knowing that we have strategies and skills and options for how to deal with the myriad of situations we can face. For me, it's about opening up the world. It's about giving people the confidence to be able to do the things they want. And a lot of times people may hesitate from doing something because the fear is, well, if if something happens, what do I do? Or they think if something happens, I won't know what to do. And self-defense helps answer that question. Well, if something happens, here are the options that you can do. Here are the things you can say. Here are the things that you can be aware of. Here are some ways that you can potentially avoid danger if you if you have that opportunity. Here's how you can recognize something that's not right. And then if you have to engage in how to defend yourself, well, then here's what you can use with your body. Because your whole body is a weapon. Your entire body is a weapon. I tell my sister that when I go hiking solo, I'll tell her like, hey, I'm going you know, to this trail. And she says, are you carrying a weapon? I say, Michelle, you know, I don't carry a weapon. You know, I am a weapon. Right. And I want us all to understand that the media and TV and movies will make us believe that men are just invulnerable. They are invincible. Nothing that you can do to them will hurt them. You know, the man that's going to attack you is going to be six foot four and 250 pounds. There's nothing you can do. And first of all, there's still plenty you can do with someone who is six foot five and 250 pounds. Nobody is invincible. And once we can realize that, that we have options and that we are powerful and that we are worth fighting for, I think that is the key. Understand that we are worth fighting for. Right. That if we have to use our physical skills, we are, we are capable and we have that ability to be able to do it. And I think that's really powerful. Also, at the same time, breaking down the myth that 
violence is most often perpetrated by strangers when it's not. Mm-hmm. Violence is most often perpetrated by somebody known to the survivor. 86% of the time, it's not the stranger. It's the family member. It's the friend. It's the person you're dating. It's the significant other. It's the acquaintance. It's someone known. And that adds a whole other layer of, you know, of the boundary setting and the self-defense. So it's that understanding that we are worth fighting for, regardless of who the other person is, because if that other person is really someone in our life that we want to be in our life, they should respect us. And if they love us, love doesn't hurt. They shouldn't be hurting us physically in any way. And if they are, then we should be empowered to do what we need to do to get out of the situation if we can, or defend ourselves so that we can get out of the situation. Right. But yeah, uh, I feel like I want to go out there and kick ass right now. So, <laughs> no, like that, that's actually like on a personal, I can't help but to say thank you. Because um, I've attended, you know, one of your um, your seminars and like it is super informative. Um, guys, if you ever are in doubt or in need, please do it. Um, one of the things that you actually did bring up during your seminar was about um, use of weapons. I'm so glad that you actually said that your body is actually like your body is a full weapon. Um, do you have any tips to actually suggest to people who are actually going out there just saying, hey, I'm going to carry my knife? And because I, I hear that and I get nervous for people who don't know how mm-hmm. to use it. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'll say, there's a lot of different opinions on, on carrying weapons, additional weapons, like knives, guns, pepper spray, things like that. And everyone's going to have a different opinion and I'm going to offer my opinion. And I am also respectful of how anyone else chooses to perceive this, this topic. But my stance on weapons is that I'm an advocate for education. I'm not necessarily an advocate for weapons. So if you do decide that you want to carry a weapon with you, you have to train with it. You just have to. There's not enough discussion about what happens to your body under stress, the neurobiology of stress and adrenaline. When your body is under stress, your fine motor skills do not work the way they do when you're calm. That means fine motor skills like moving your fingers and moving your hands, small movements don't work the same way. So if you are not practicing with whatever tool you're planning to carry, you may be disappointed in how you respond when you are under stress, which means it may not work the way you expect it to. You may drop it. I did a fight. I I fight with adrenaline all the time when we're in our full contact classes, when we're doing demos and trainings. We were in a staff training and I finished a fight and I had to pick up a backpack. I dropped it. I picked it up and I dropped it and I watched the video. It just, it's like, it just fell right through my hand. Like I was a ghost and it's adrenaline. Yeah. I couldn't even close my hand and keep it closed on a, on a strap of a backpack. So imagine then you're under stress. You haven't practiced with your pepper spray. Now you're trying to find where it is, mm-hmm. yep. find it, open it up, turn the knob, make sure that it's aimed in the right direction and push the button all in the split second that it might take that you need to be able to do it in that situation. Right. If someone's going to carry a weapon, they need to train with it. And they have to understand that whatever they bring into a fight can be used against them. Right. Those are just things you have to know. It's real. Right. And I want us to put our security into our bodies and ourselves because our bodies and ourselves are strong enough. Like that's what we carry with us 24 seven. Sometimes you might go to a country or a part of the world, a part of the United States, even where certain weapons aren't allowed. And so does that mean you're not safe then? No, it doesn't mean you're not safe. Like, I don't want us to rely on something else when we are fully capable and we should be confident enough to rely on ourselves. Right. I I completely agree because I've definitely gone through each of those stages. I've gone through fight. I've gone through flight and I've gone through complete freeze. Um, like I'm probably incriminating the hell out of myself, but it's cool. It's all right. I'm going to consider y'all all listening family and I'm expecting y'all not to snitch on me to the cops. But, you know, like I had uh, <laughs> someone who actually tried to attack me on the train and I had pepper spray at the time. And I immediately went into, you know, just it was the fight or flight that's kind of kicked in. I immediately I knew how to use it, but my brain went on empty of whatever's going to get me out of the situation. Guys, please don't use a pepper spray on the damn train. Um, Cause that means that not only is that person going to be choking, but so are you. And that's essentially what happened. Like I started choking. He started choking. We all just started choking because I reacted out of fear, you know, but when mm-hmm. I think about it, even with me having my background, like, I mean, uh, this, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll scare off a couple of people with this, but I used to work for the department of corrections. I was administrative staff. And when I worked there, I was actually taught how to use it. And the one thing that they kept saying to me in training is that you want to use this in an outside environment and you want to be careful of how the ear and the direction it actually goes in. And 
that's been years. That's been over a decade, you know? Um, and that's a lot of thought right? to have to consider in that moment, unless you've been trained with it and you're used to like thinking through in that kind of adrenaline state. Right. You know, so this was a stranger, you know, in that instance. But when I think about like, I, I will say, you know, for like, this one, I'm glad I actually put a trigger warning out there. You know, I would say that I am a multiple sexual, a multiple survivor of sexual assault. Um, and one of the people I actually known, I did, I didn't know him. And when it happened, it just, it was just like, what is going on here? Um, why am I not reacting? I was just so angry with myself mm-hmm. of why am I not reacting to, to this? Why am I not kicking him in the balls? Like I've read and, you know, I've seen in every video, you know, um, I always hear these things of, if I was you, I would have done Blank, 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 blank. And the reality no. is that that's just not how it works. It's no. It just doesn't work. No. Like, I mean, when I, when I think about, like, you know, without going into explicit details of, you know, some of the, the things that I've gone through, like, I still have a fear of, you know, being in a library because that's where I met the first person that tried to sexually assault me. And, you know, to not put in all the details of what's, what happened, like, that was my first kiss. You know, so a lot of my personal trauma, and I, I can't encourage enough people to actually please look into therapy if it actually will help you. For me, I had a hard yeah. time and I still do have a hard time with going to libraries and I love reading and I love writing, you know, so I created a library in my house. Um, you know, I have a problem with running in certain areas because, and it's like, I can, it can be super open. It can be bright and everything. It's just the idea of the area is enough of a trigger for me to not touch certain things, a a texture can throw me off. And these are the things that people are not aware of, you know, or or just, they just don't know until they actually, and I I don't wish this on anyone, but people just really don't know until they're placed in these really jacked up scenarios of how your body will literally lock up on you. And it Mm -hmm. feels like your body is betraying you in that moment. It's just like, why are you not doing the thing that can save us in this situation? And you're left with the aftermath of it is that it's beyond just the physical act. Because even, even if you did everything right, let's say that you, you know, your body reacted the way you, you did, you're still left with the thoughts of what happens if it happens to me again. Like, I think that the percentage rate, at least we're talking about sexual assault, I think the percentage rate of you possibly becoming a victim again is like a wild number, you know? And like you said, these are some most times as the people that you actually know. You know, so I don't want anyone to feel like, you know, listen to this and feel like completely traumatized. Like, oh my God, I need to look out for my labor. Like, no, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to go out there and say, I'm going to take these skills and Nicole was bringing, bringing here and I'm going to kick his ass in advance just in case he thinks anything. No, uh, this, that's definitely not the goal of this, you know, of this episode. The goal is, is just for everyone to feel empowered in their own skins, regardless of how you identify, um, to feel seen and to know that I, we can't say it enough. It is not your fault you know, whether it's a sexual assault or harassment or, you know, anything of that nature, it is really not your fault at all because there's just too much victim blaming out here in this world instead of actually putting and putting and pointing the fingers at the the person that actually is deserving of owning that. And that's really the person that's attacking. Yeah, hands down. Um, Thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing what you just shared and thank you for trusting me and all of us here on the podcast with that. And I just want to reiterate to you so that you hear it. It was not your fault. Yeah. It was not your fault. Latoya. Yes. And freezing is a very normal human reaction to a traumatic or stressful or violent event. It happens. There are people with training that have frozen. Right. Whatever you did to survive your situation was the right thing to do. That's definitely one of those things that's hard. It's hard for me. Like, even now, like, yeah. it's hard to kind of register it. Like, I hear you. Yeah. And it's just like, I'm in my head, I'm just like, I power lift. You know, I run. I know I can kick people ass. And right. like, like, sometimes I, I sometimes I even wonder sometimes of if this was the reason why I got into power lifting. Because I was just like, I want to look big and strong. And nobody will mess with me if I look this way. It will, like, push away people. If, you know, if mm-hmm. like, cause I mean, cause like, I don't like for, like for some people, people are like, I'm intimidated to having muscles. Me, I wore like a badge of honor. I was like, the more muscles I have, the more people I can keep people away from me. Um, like they look at me and like, I mean, I had the nickname bouncer 
at one point because what people saw was these like crazy ripped ass shoulders and arms and they're like yeah if I saw you walking down the block I would never mess with you and I'm like you know and a part of me was kind of silently cheering that on like yes nobody would mess with me but Mm -hmm. at the same token I realized how toxic it was because I was like damn I don't want people to actually fear me you know, I don't mm-hmm. want people to see my body and instantly think weapon. Like I do want people to see me and say, hey, yeah, she's a big damn teddy bear. You know, she's willing, you know, she'll welcome you with open arms. But, you know, I, I still have my work to do. You know, like I, I realized like, you know, just this one, this episode alone, you actually are helping me. So I thank you for, you know, reminding me because some days are not easy. You know, um, it, like it, it, it survived, like being a survivor of, that type of trauma, it, it thrives much longer than just the incident. It is, this is like the first incident was when I was like nine, you know, and I realized how much I blocked it out. And then I thought I was past it until something like it was the weirdest of environments. I think I was in like college and I had woke up from a nightmare and that was the thing. And I mean, that was in college in like 18, 19 and Mm -hmm. I dozed off during this really boring damn lecture and I woke up and just freaked out and scared to shit out the entire class. And I'm just like, you know, and so now I'm just like traumatized, like, okay, great. I just made like a fool out of myself in front of this entire class. And I'm a hard person to embarrass, you know? Um, and now I realize I have all this unresolved trauma that I need to actually sort through, you know, I, I, at least in my case, I know I, I say, at least I got, you know, I'm getting, I'm still getting help for it. I worry more for the people who will never say anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. Absolutely. And it's hard. The, the blame, the self blame that we have as survivors can be really hard. And it's, it's not something that ever goes away. You know, like I think back on like my experience and I feel like, gosh, it was so many 30 plus years ago why aren't I better? Why do I still think about it? Why do certain things still bring it up? And then I, you know, I get angry at myself because I haven't gotten past it. But part of healing as a survivor isn't necessarily that you're like recovery isn't like an end goal. It's not something you're just going to walk to the store and all of a sudden you're going to be better. That trauma is often going to come with you and you just learn to carry it differently as you go through your life. And it is there with you and you just learn how to carry the load in different ways. And you just reach out to the support systems you need at different times in your life. It's, it's a journey. It's not a destination. Definitely. Definitely agree. You know, on this note, so, you know, um, I, I asked everyone that, um, that come on the podcast, I always ask them this signature question and it's like, it stumbled a couple of people. Some people are like, yeah, I got this. You know, um, I'm still one of those people. I created a damn question. I don't even know how to answer this yet. You know, <laughs> You know, so I'll ask this question to you, you know, if you take away all of the roles, you know, whether, you know, um, you know, people identify you as, you know, a person that they identify as a badass superhero on the hike, you know, or, you know, a leader um, in this uh, in this world that's actually teaching people how to practice boundaries, how to, you know, whether that's in physical form or in the mental space. You know, who are you to yourself? I knew you were going to ask me this question and I'm like you, I still feel like I don't quite know how to answer. Yeah. I am, I am a lover of life. I just enjoy the world. I enjoy nature. I enjoy the outdoors. I enjoy new experiences. I enjoy meeting new people. And I, have a very protective spirit of other people. Um, I think that you actually answered that damn well. And I might actually have to take some notes. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, so the next time I'm asked this question, this is how I'm going to answer it. No, no, no. <laughs> no I, I think that, you know, like when I think back to like, you know, why I asked, I asked this question to everybody on the podcast is I think a part of me, um, I, I think as a, we are all storytellers. Every person, like not just me, you know, anybody that comes on this on this podcast, we are all telling something from our stories, our unique perspectives. And sometimes 
we get so caught up in, you know, making sure the story is actually put out there, right? We put out these, um, these fine details and you start to think as you're talking through all these things, it's just like, hmm, okay, when I take away that role, who am I to me? You know, I know I identify for me, I identify as a mom, I identify as an athlete, I identify as somebody something and then I have nothing to fill myself up with because I gave it all away. Um, you know, so when I when I think about that question, I'm just like, who are we to ourselves? So I, I think that yours is just so beautiful. And I would gratefully um, <clears throat> still um, borrow. <laughs> You're welcome to. You are welcome to. <laughs> oh, definitely borrow those lines. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I will check it. You're welcome. Oh my gosh. Thank you for inviting me. This was so lovely. You're so wonderful, Latoya. I look up to you in so many ways. I find you so inspirational and I'm just so honored that you invited me. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for tuning in to the Running Fat Chef podcast. I will catch y'all on the next episode. Y'all know where I be. Bye. Hey fam, the Running Fat Chef podcast is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. If you require medical, financial, or legal advice, please follow up with a licensed professional. While information provided on the podcast may be sourced or stem from a professional opinion, it should not supersede the direction or be interpreted as a treatment plan from a medical caretaker or legal professional. Always keep in mind that words and stories are powerful, but unique just like our bodies and personal situations. I'm a podcaster and a creative storyteller, not a physician or a lawyer. Let's treat the conversations presented here from sponsors, guests, or even from me like intimate opinion pieces.